Tonight, taking on fake news. With misinformation and disinformation spreading like wildfire, award-winning journalist and take on fake host Hari Srinivasan debunks and unmasks some of the biggest lies out there. How you can separate fact from fiction. As Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Tonight, we delve into the world of misinformation and the PBS digital series that is taking fake news head on. The series is called Take on Fake. Hosted and produced by my colleague, Hari Srinivasan, Take on Fake debunks claims you've seen or maybe even shared online to show you how to stay informed. Each episode of Take on Fake examines a different aspect of misinformation, from misleading reporting to health-related myths to the dangers of finding yourself falling down an internet rabbit hole of fake news. Here's a look. Misinformation is becoming more widespread. It's easier to be fooled than you might think. Do you think we are kind of past the point where human beings can identify a good deep fake? Yes. Everyone is susceptible. Are you living in a filter bubble? On some level, we all are. I'm in the matrix. How do I get out? Learn Kung Fu. No, I'm kidding. In this season of Take on Fake, we're digging deeper. They weren't just stealing the photos, they were then photoshopping them. Into higher impact issues. These conspiracy theories are often rooted in anti-Semitism and racism. With leading experts who are on the front lines in the combat against misinformation. We've also, as journalists, had to develop new skill sets. You do want to put out fact-checked information, but then you can't really rush it. So you can arm yourself with the knowledge of truth. If we can't objectively agree on reality, how can we agree on anything? If we don't have a shared reality, we can't really come together. Can we turn it around? I hope so. Don't spread fake news. Keep it real. I'm Hari Srinivasan, and this is Take on Fake. And joining us now to talk more about the series is the host and executive producer of Take on Fake, my friend and colleague, Hari Srinivasan. Hari, welcome. Always good to see you. Jack, great to be with you. Let's start with explaining to us the concept behind the program here. What is it you're trying to accomplish? You know, we started a couple of years ago because we saw the rise of misinformation and disinformation, and we thought it is a public service to try and educate and inform, and it's very on-brand with public broadcasting, to say, let's help people understand how to spot misinformation because we are surrounded by it. And I think the case for our relevance has only grown over the past couple of years. I want to toss to a, a, a clip here, and it has to do with a, a, a conversation, an episode you did with a journalist who has been covering the conflict in Ukraine. So let's take a look at this for a second. When we come out, I want to talk about it some more. Hours after Russian forces began their wide-ranging attack on Ukraine, 52,000 people watched a live stream on Facebook gaming that claimed to be filmed from the Ukrainian border. The video was shared on other platforms like Twitter, attracting thousands more viewers before it was debunked. 
proven not to be a video of real events, but scenes from a video game. This is just one of many examples of misinformation being circulated about the crisis in Ukraine. If you've been following the war on social platforms, it's likely you've come across some of this yourself. While this type of false content has become a regular feature on social media, it can be really challenging to identify during breaking news situations, as journalists work to verify and report on what's happening. Misinformation or disinformation shared during a crisis can be upsetting, confusing, and potentially even dangerous for those who encounter it. And by amplifying it, you could also be promoting a political narrative. So how can we better navigate social media during breaking news to uncover what's really happening? To answer that question, I spoke with Emmanuel Saliba, an investigative journalist who previously joined me in 2020 after a massive explosion occurred in Beirut, Lebanon. People posted a wave of misattributed and doctored videos after that blast, including ones that appeared to show a missile striking, which, as she proved, never actually happened. Here is the original video. You see, it doesn't have that filter. And when you play it out, you can see that there isn't a missile that comes through the sky and hits. Emmanuel now has her own YouTube channel, Tracing the Truth, where she helps viewers decipher what she calls the avalanche of information on social media. As Russia's attacks on Ukraine have intensified, Emmanuel has been providing viewers with information she independently verified and showing them how she does it. Social media made it possible for journalists to access people that we may have never had access to in the past. Cell phones have sort of changed the way that we gather news. It's put a camera in everyone's hands. And so we've also, as journalists, had to develop new skill sets, the ability to verify that footage, to geolocate it, to understand if it's real or not. As news consumers, they now have access to learn how that footage is being verified. And they also have access to all the same information that we do as journalists. So after this conversation and after your own work and what you've seen in terms of journalism and the concepts of misinformation and disinformation, what sort of impact are you seeing it have on our world of journalism? You know, it is uh, kind of an existential threat to what we do every day. I mean, I, I like to think, you know, look, if Back when I used to work in a news program that had a certain deadline every night, I wonder to myself, if I can't figure out what's real and what's not real, what business do I have amplifying that to thousands of other people, right? So I don't think that journalism has ever faced this kind of an intense crisis. People have always tried to pull one over on us, and people have always tried to lie and have their kind of own agenda represented. That's not what I'm necessarily talking about. But the scale at which misinformation can be created and distributed now is unlike anything we have ever seen. So we really have to have our kind of radar really much more fine-tuned to try to figure out is this uh, a piece of information that is serving somebody's purpose? Uh, and then kind of looking down in the technical details saying, is this even real? Was this from that real person's account? Is this a real person at all that was sharing this? Um, is the image uh, doctored? Has the audio been doctored? I mean, these are, you know, you're going to require a bit of technical skill to figure out what has uh, landed on your lap or what you found. 
And I think what's remarkable is you said it's not as if we have not had in the the journalism profession these types of instances of disinformation, misinformation in the past. But as you said, it's the scale, the level of sophistication now that we're wrestling with. Brings us to the next clip I, I want to show here, and it has to do with an episode you did about um, misinformation in the fossil fuel industry. Let's take a look. So that's one of those key differences between misinformation and disinformation is intent. When you look through all the archives, what is the intent that you found? Document after document that showed that all of these industry experts who worked for these companies knew that they could not get this plastic recycling off the ground. You had these fundamental problems that they were sort of outlining, you know, over and over again. The number one being that it's just cheaper and easier to use new plastic made from virgin oil and gas than it is to use old plastic trash. Old plastic trash is very expensive to collect, sort, and do something with, and then keep it pure. So there's no, it's just, it's a very tricky problem. This is more than 40 years ago, and this is right where we are right now. How, how did they know this then? And yet we were told something totally different for decades and all the way up until me sitting at my desk going, wait, what? This doesn't go at the, what do you mean none of this gets turned into something else? So that that for me was like, I, I remember that moment because it was the first document that I saw that I thought, oh my God, they knew. Other reporting has shown how the oil industry was aware of its role in driving climate change and followed a similar strategy of promoting myths disinformation to deny and distract from this fact while pushing a narrative of personal responsibility back on you, the consumer. And it wasn't just ads, as Laura explains. When it came to plastic recycling, for example, these companies invested millions of dollars in splashy public programs that their own research told them were doomed to fail. They started launching all these feel-good projects nationally and they would get these huge fanfares and they would throw a whole bunch of money behind them and we started looking at we we pulled a dozen of the projects that were launched in 1981 these were things like dow and huntsman were going to recycle all the plastic in the nation's national parks you know amco was going to recycle all the plastic in new york public schools and turn it into something else there was a you know a new recycling facility with fancy machines all these big flashy things and they would get all this press in the local newspapers and on the local news brand new thing or guess what and the the message to the public was was, oh good, there's not going to be any plastic left in the national parks. So glad that that got solved. And then when we looked five years later at what happened to all 12 of those projects, every single one of them had been faltered, failed, shut down. They canceled all of them and not any news stories. Nothing happened. So coming out of this, let me ask you to help us understanding all of this and to focus on the difference between misinformation and disinformation. Right. The, the easiest thing, the easiest way to tell those two apart is intent. Misinformation can be something that we shared unintentionally. Hey, look, I saw this cool thing. You know, take a look. Well, that might not have been true. Now, you didn't have an intent to deceive, but disinformation. Now, whether that is coming from a state actor or whether that's coming from a corporate entity or a lobbying group, that is people that are specifically targeting you with a piece of information to try to change your mind knowing in the first place that it is not true. 
How about the, the introduction now of the world of artificial intelligence? <laughs> Talk a little bit you know, about how you all are taking a look at that. Yeah, we have had this last season has been full of videos that we've been doing about artificial intelligence. I've even gotten on the kind of vertical platforms like TikTok and Instagram Reels to be doing kind of shorter clips where people are. But artificial intelligence, you know, it's just a tool. I want to kind of say that at the outset. It's like a an axe or the internet. It's really about how you use it and who wields it. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there's some amazing things that we're going to be able to benefit from as a society with artificial intelligence. That all said, the scale at which you and I can create photorealistic images that just with the type of a few words is amazing. I mean, so one part of my brain, the technological nerdy geeky side is just my mind is blown. I'm like, wow, this is such a cool toy. And the other side of my brain that's working as a journalist says, oh my gosh, how am I going to be able to tell whether or not this is real? Where's the watermark? How can I right click this and run it through an image search engine? What can I do? Right? So Again, artificial intelligence just kind of makes the disinformation or misinformation creation process spread on steroids. It's in the past six months, the capabilities that I have seen with people using tools that are available on a desktop, laptop, or really even one of our phones now is tremendous. And how fearful are you? And you touched base on it a moment ago, but let's focus on artificial intelligence and journalism. How fearful are you that this might it might extraordinarily exacerbate what you talked about before? Look, uh, there are several layers of, I think, threats to journalism. And I think the more you are in an environment that is under a deadline pressure, where the stakes are high, and in my head, as I say these words, I'm thinking to myself, the election, the election, the election, right? So when there is public opinion that could be swayed one direction or another, what piece of information changes a campaign? What what changes a race? What comes in the day before the, the primary or the night before the election? How fast does that misinformation spread? How long does it take? You know, there's that old adage that, you know, a, a lie can spread around the world before the truth even has time to get out of bed and put its shoes on. Well, in this scale, I, I, what really concerned me is that it can go around the world several times and the amount of time it takes for the truth to catch up would really take a lot of effort. And again, journalists are up to that task, but are people going to make decisions based on bad intel, bad information when they go to the polls or anything else? We talk about anything else, and, and it, that leads me to the next clip I want to toss to it, and that is, as you said, the spread of propaganda misinformation. And one of your episodes took a look at Russia and the propaganda that's being spread there. Let's take a quick look at this. Clint knows all too well how convincing Russian propaganda can be. Russians are there very quickly every morning. They are voluminous in their messaging. They are very consistent with that messaging. It makes them particularly effective, even though they're not really committing that much resources. It's his job to research terrorism, counterterrorism, social media influence, and Russian disinformation. He even wrote a book on the subject. He has witnessed firsthand Russia's tactic of placing a kernel of truth at the center of a web of lies to make it all seem true. 
In the 1980s, as the Cold War was coming to an end, the KGB successfully started a disinformation campaign that blamed the US for the AIDS epidemic, accusing the Pentagon of genetically engineering HIV. That was from a academic journal. They took just a kernel of truth. They then wrapped stories around it. They put a bogus expert on top of it and they proliferated around the world. That's happened exactly the same way today with claims that there are bio labs in Ukraine. There is a kernel of truth that the US worked with Ukrainian research facilities to close it down. They wanted to close these down just for safety purposes, but it had nothing to do with the bio lab. These were medical research facilities. But that kernel of truth is what helps power these conspiracies forward. Oftentimes in the early days, when they were less sophisticated, they would literally create personas that looked like Americans, which were operated from Russia, and the content they would share would be Russian overt propaganda. Since the early 2000s, Russia has been engaged in a large-scale propaganda campaign in Ukraine, part of Vladimir Putin's efforts to take back what was lost when the Soviet Union dissolved. For the people of Ukraine, it's something they've been dealing with for decades. So coming out of that, we often hear the, the term the, the disinformation war. Is Russia winning that war? Well, if you want to talk about the conflict in Ukraine, they are pretty successful at changing the hearts and minds. I mean, you know, early on, what you saw in the Ukraine conflict was that there were really two big streams of information. In Russia, for example, if you were older and more likely to watch TV, you probably were getting the truth that Vladimir Putin would like you to consume on state-sponsored television. If you were younger, and you were looking across social media, you might have seen a whole different side of the war. You might have seen Russian soldiers in harm's way. You might have seen them being defeated by Ukrainians because the Ukrainians were very social media savvy and they were putting this stuff out as well. So at some point, you had to figure out, wait a minute, which of the things that I'm seeing, which version of the truth do I believe? It couldn't possibly be both an absolute success for Russia and an absolute sort of success for Ukraine, right? So people had a little bit of a cognitive dissonance trying to figure out what it is that they saw versus what it is that they believed. So Russia is doing uh, as well as it can when it comes to the information control and uh, manipulation, because that is pretty important in a war. It's not just what you put out on the battlefield. It's the images that people get at home about what's happening, especially you know, parents of soldiers who are perhaps dying on the front line. What kind of images are they seeing on a nightly basis? As you know, one of the expressions that circulates and percolates within combat is that is the expression that truth is the first casualty yeah. of war. And, and I think what you've pointed to here underscores all of that. You've talked often um, in, in various episodes about the notion that we seem to place the burden on, on us, the consumer, the information consumer, to, to figure out, okay, what's genuine, what's legitimate here? And what isn't? So, And I guess the question is, why are we putting that burden on us, on the consumers of this information, do you think? Look, I think that is a, a fantastic uh, thing that we should be thinking about collectively. You know, I have this other analogy that I go back to, which is that 
I think it was uh, maybe it was British Petroleum hired Ogilvy and Mather, a big PR firm, uh, decades ago to come up with the phrase carbon footprint. And that really put the onus on myself and you, you know, deciding to ride our bikes to work and thinking about our carbon footprint, what we contributed to climate change. I'm not saying that's not important, but what it also did was it kind of took the eye and the spotlight off of maybe the cause, the, the giant amounts of fossil fuel emissions, et cetera, right? In this era, what I think is happening is a parallel in that the platforms, meaning Meta and Google and TikTok and all these folks are interested in you and I being media literate, you and I kind of becoming smarter consumers. And I do think that we have a responsibility as the information ecosystem and the landscape around us changes that we should get smarter. I'm not opposed to that. But I also kind of look back and say, wait, listen, you, know, you guys built these algorithms that you don't even know how to control anymore. And they are enabling misinformation and disinformation to spread on scales that we never comprehended. And listen, you, you have some responsibility here too. So come on, let's go, let's start fixing this. And of course, you know, these folks go up on Capitol Hill and they raise their right hand and they ask legislators, please regulate us because they know it's not gonna happen. So what would you say to someone who's watching this conversation? They're saying, whoa, that, that's me. I, I like to consume information, but I'm not highly technically literate in terms of filters and things such as that. Yeah. And they might look to you and say, okay, Harry, what do, what do I do? What kind of advice can you give me about that? Yeah. You know, you, you, the, the most simple ways to combat misinformation and disinformation to become a smarter consumer of this is really just to take a breath before you press the forward button, before you press the like button, before you press, you know, even open a link. Just kind of slow down for a second. If you run across a headline or a story or an image or a video that just gets you going, right? Like really makes either your blood boil because, oh my gosh, I can't believe this exists. I really hate this. I want to tell my friends about this or the inverse oh, this is fantastic. This is exactly what I think. And man, I want to share this. Hold on a second, right? You might be a pawn in somebody else's chess game, meaning you might be sort of one vector that whoever created that disinformation, that intentionally uh, you know, false information, they might be banking on that emotional rise that you get to be the trigger that has you forwarding this information, right? And that's, that's, that is one of the easiest ways we can kind of pull back. If you can just kind of, uh, in the in the words of the sage Daniel Tiger, when you get so mad that you want to roar, take a deep breath and count to four, right? And I, <laughs> it is words to live by in the internet in 2023, really, because if you can just kind of calm yourself down and say, hey, who who, who profits from me sharing this? Because it's my credibility on the line. When I tell 15 friends, hey, look at this. And if one of those folks is smart enough to just hold on, you know, kind of suss out that there's something fishy about this, and then they have to reply back to that email chain with my other 14 friends and say, all right, uh, that's that's not really true. I got egg on my face. Yeah. I, I must agree with you. I've often believed that Daniel Tiger is is the font of all wisdom <laughs> in, right. in many ways. We should all often say, what would Daniel be saying yeah, or yeah, exactly. Tiger or any of the others there with him? Um, I got about two minutes left here. Let me, I want to come back to something that you touched on before, and, and that is politics. 
and what we're seeing here. We have um, uh, on the horizon what could, will be an extraordinarily combative presidential campaign. Also, uh, houses, or House seats, Senate seats, I believe, also uh, mm-hmm. up for grabs here. What do you anticipate, based on what we've seen so far, what do you anticipate the, 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 the role, the extent, the level of misinformation and disinformation will be? You know, uh, I, I I wish I could be optimistic about what's coming. I wish that there were automatically going to be tools that will help us spot all this and put a big giant neon sticker on any image that you see on Facebook or Instagram or a video on TikTok. But I don't think that's going to be here, at least not in time before the election. So I am uh, expecting that there will be a lot more fake images that are used in campaign ads, either the flyers that you might get at your door or something that you see online. Uh, we've already had examples of it, and we're still quite a ways away, right? And I think that the tools are going to get much more refined, and it's going to be very hard for you automatically to say seeing is believing. So what I think is going to be very difficult for you know us as journalists is how do we instill in our audiences a healthy skepticism without crossing over into institutional cynicism, right? Because I really think that if we sat down and we went over all the things that could be faked today in 2023, I think there's a real good chance people would say, well, why am I going to believe any of this stuff? What's to say that, why do I even know that this is PBS? Do I know that this is the BBC? Ah, forget it, right? And I don't want people to throw up their hands and just assume that everything is fake. That's not my interest, but I really do want people to be a lot more vigilant before they start making decisions about what they're going to do at the polls. And that's a great point that it's not just that one flyer that shows up on your front porch that you'll toss aside, but you end up literally and figuratively tossing aside all of it out there. And that's the the real danger. Hey, Harry, we could talk forever. Um, it, it is a marvelous series. Here's the best compliment I can give you. At each one of these episodes, you walk away saying, I didn't know that, <laughs> now, but now I do. And I, and I think that's the greatest value of anything that you can do in journalism. All right, always good to see you. Uh, marvelous work. We'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks so much, Jack. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.